Well, hi everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm with my friend Richard Collins, and we are in Cafe Kick in Exmouth Market. Yeah, that's right. My first time here. His first time. uh, Yeah, we're surrounded by lots of football memorabilia, including um, Hamburg San Pauli scarf, Benfica, (laughs) and so on. But um, yeah, my favourite German team, Borussia Dortmund, is not here, so I'll have to uh, do something about that. (laughs) And they're doing okay, aren't they? They're doing very well, yeah. Yeah. They're uh, um, bumping uh, close to the top of the Bundesliga. Yeah. Yeah. And are they still in the Champions League in the European? Um, Yes, they are. They are, I think. Yeah, Yeah. thus far. So, um, although that's really what we'd like to talk about, uh, in fact, we are required and requested by me to think not only about cricket and football, the things that we know most about, care most about, probably, but also I wanted to chat to Richard about his work. Um, I've been a fan of his work for many years. I first encountered it when I was obliged to teach a course on Canadian television. I had never been to Canada, and I had never seen any Canadian television, nor had anybody in the room, but we used Richard's book, on Canadian communications policy <laughs> issues. Thank you. <laughs> so, Richard was my entree to Canada. Well, I'm surprised they didn't um, uh, you know, erect barriers at the border to anyone. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this is a thank you for the tea appearing. Um, but uh, yeah, it was um, it was a very controversial book and um, came out in in 1990, which is probably earlier than any of your listeners were born Um, and um, I'd um, been occupied or intellectually occupied I suppose with Canada for nearly 10 years before that and um, I got interested in a very opportunistic way I'd um, decided I was going to do a series of comparative studies of national broadcasting and a colleague and I had done a a book on what was then West German television Um, and I was looking around for another national case study and I thought I'd do um, the Netherlands but um, a uh, wiser um, and more uh, career savvy colleague of mine said don't do the Netherlands there's no money there, but um, only the Dutch disease. <laughs> Canadian government are trying to encourage people to study Canada, um, and um, they'll pay for you to go there. So I thought, well, this is too good an opportunity to miss. And um, I did go to Canada, made friends there, became increasingly interested in it, and. Um, What interested me was the contradiction between um, a dominant sort of policy rhetoric that Canada would fall apart if it didn't have a national culture. And since television was, and I would say probably still is, the major sort of vector of cultural experience for people. the problem was, or the political problem was, that Canadians were watching too little Canadian TV. And by, just to cut in, almost everybody in Canada lives within 50 miles of the US border. So Indeed they, they do. And some of them even live, live in Canada but south of bits of Michigan, for example. Yep. So when we think of 
these two countries as, as absolutely massive, the fact is vast swathes of one bit of them have nobody in them. They're very close to the United that, States. That, that's right. And um, uh, this sort of proximity and um, interpenetration of cultures is... Um, you know, it's still very evident. Um, you know, you'd be hard put, I think, to um, uh, you know get a man from Mars or a woman from Mars if um, such um, sexual differences exist on Mars. Um, to um, you know, say if they were in the um, suburbs or an in industrial area of a North American city, whether they were in Canada or the United States. Yeah, but. Um, I'd, I'd sort of sketch one leg of the contradiction. I mean, the other was um, recognising the sort of historical fact, I make the inverted commas sign with my fingers, um, that since the 19th century, most Canadians' media consumption had, you know, overwhelmingly been of um, media from the United States. Um, books and newspapers in the 19th century radio and cinema in the early part of the 20th century and latterly of course television so um, I concluded that if you know Canada was um, going to cease to exist um, it was taking a bloody long time to do it <laughs> and that was what the book was about and um, essentially I developed an argument that um, you know, this um, nationalist presupposition didn't fit the empirical facts. And so that threw up a new question. Well, why was this discourse continuing to be mobilised? And um, the argument that I came up with, which um, lost me many of my friends and certainly didn't make me any new ones in Canada, was that um, this was a very convenient sort of um, ideology for Canadian elites who were able to um, milk the subsidy cap. Um, both um, to make films or uh, subsidise their musical activities, but of course it was also a very convenient um, ideology for university teachers. And um, not surprisingly, um, my book got rejected by seven publishers before it um, uh, actually was um, published by the University of Toronto Press, and um, no better press to publish it. So, uh, you well, know, for a number of reasons, the, it is the, the top, story did have a t happy ending. It is the top scholarly publisher in Canada. I had no idea that your piece had been rejected by other publishers. That's yes. very interesting. Yeah. I'm sure there were lots and lots of people I know and like in Canada who were sent the manuscript and said bollocks to this. I have sent them um, poisonous letters ever since, <laughs> Toby. <laughs> so one of the, the sort of things I took away from reading the book was an expression that may have been yours actually, but is my shorthand summary, which is that you can decouple culture from communication. Um, decoupling was a term that I used in the book, and, and our mutual friend Stuart Cunningham was kind enough to, um, I think, write a review of the book, um, which he called the decoupling thesis. So a term that I had used, but I hadn't sort of seen as... Um, a suitable slogan was um, kindly um, sloganised <laughs> by uh, by Stuart. Stuart, um, another victim of the pod, by the way, <laughs> who is of course fantastic when he graced its hallowed. I don't know what they're not halls. What are they? Well, let's mix metaphors. The hallowed turf of your podcast. <laughs> <The> hallowed. <laughs> 
La plume de ma tante est dans le jardin de votre podcast. So, it was a significant book, and I guess the reason I wanted to start there, as we turned the machinery on today, was that I thought it would be a suitable entree, a bit of a shock to people to hear that sentiment, for you to tell us how you see the current field of the study of the media, because you've uh, bestrode it for decades. Well, um, uh, you're in um, the role of being a um, professional flatterer here, Toby. Um, Always. But um, I'll, um, I'll uh, ride with it. Um, I mean, let, let me do a bit of further contextualisation. I mean, you know, but um, your listeners, wherever they are, don't know, that um, I'm now retired. I'm, uh, I'll be 67 next month. And um, uh, at the time I had to retire, we still had compulsory retirement on grounds of age in the UK. So um, this has meant that I've not been um, as active a researcher and writer over the last couple of years as I was when, you know, part of my um, professional duties were to do those things. Um, but I, th I think I'd like to explore sort of two themes uh, arising out of your prompt. One is just to sort of stick with this collective identity, national identity and the relationship of it to the media. But then perhaps um, return to the challenge that you have posed about... Um, well, you know, the nature of the contemporary media. And just to pick up this sort of nationalism thread, although, as you'll hear, um, that's really not quite the right term for my take on things, but it's, um, it's a good proxy, because I think um, reflections on national identity are really, you know, the main sort of reflection on collective identities. And um, as I... Um, take it, you know, that's what the sort of culturalist engagement with the media is about, the um, production and reproduction of um, collective identities, however pluralised, however diffused, however mosaic-like. Nonetheless, um, that's what it's about. So, you know, having sort of knocked off Canada and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the sort of self-deprecatory engagement with it that I'm giving now, I mean, risks making it sound as though I'm being derogatory about Canada and Canadian scholarship, and I'm not. I mean, I still have some very, very good friends and collaborators there, and it's a society that I find still very interesting and, um, you know, which I actually like very much. But um, I, th I, d I did think, um, well, you know, having made this sort of sense of it um, are there any other um, political communities that um, you know I could um, explore this thesis with um, and not only of course is Canada the sort of neighbour to the um, dominant cultural producer of our times the United States but it's um, a multilingual society and um, uh, you know, notoriously, um, uh, Canada is a society of two solitudes. Um, again, a useful metaphor, which, of course, somewhat overstates the case, but nonetheless is a good um, paradigm. 
what other political communities are there um, of this kind. And um, I became very interested in the European Union. Um, here we've got now a 27 state political community with I think now about 12 official languages. Um, how does this political community hold together? Well, thus far it has held together. It's continuing to attract new members. Um, in a couple of months, Croatia will join and make it a 28-country community. And if one looks at EU media policy, you'll find you know, very Canadian-like rhetoric there um, that a condition of the EU holding together is a shared culture, a shared media universe, um, and that um, if Europeans don't watch more European TV, the whole um, of the EU will um, run into the sand and um, the solidarity that's necessary to keep it going will um, not be there. Well, we remember that Jean Monnet, one of the founders of what was the European Economic Community, was alleged to have said, if I had the whole thing to start over again, I would have begun with culture instead of things like coal. A very good um, quotation to adduce, Toby. Um, I've spent considerable labour trying to identify where and when Monet said that. Um, it's promiscuously cited, <laughs> but I've never found a primary source for this. So um, let's agree that uh, Monet might have said it, and um, if he didn't say it, well, you know, probably he ought to have done. But. Um, I think the EU is a good test for the sort of decoupling thesis. Um, it's certainly in danger of decoupling. Um, I think we've got a very, very intense um, crisis at the moment, um, a deepening crisis which is, you know, destroying the life chances for um, many people, particularly young people, um, in southern Europe, but not exclusively there. So, you know, my question is, well, okay, we can see um, a danger of decoupling going on. Is it an absence of um, watching the same TV programmes that's responsible for that? Well, you can, of course, build an argument that um, there is a lack of, you know, what I might call sentimental solidarity. And again, I don't use the word sentimental in a disparaging way. There is a lack of sentimental solidarity. Um, the language communities in the European Union really don't engage with each other very much. True, the English speakers um, inhabit their language community much more exclusively than do pretty well any other language community in the EU. But I come back to the question, um, is it an absence of a shared sort of discursive space or a shared culture that is in danger of decoupling um, the political institutions of the states in the EU from each other? Well, I would say no. I think that, you know, the decoupling is going on through the material forces exerted by the euro. Um, actually, what's striking about the present instance, I think, is you know how unimportant the media is in all this. And um, 
we know that the sort of holy grail of media studies has been, um, you know, to determine whether, you know, the media do have influence, if so, of what kind, if so, of how much, and so on. Um, and um, endless micro-studies in and out of laboratories have taken place on that. But I think it's a question one could also address at a macro level in the way that I started to do with Canada and have also done in my writings on the EU. And actually, I think, you know, in both instances, you see the culture that media and cultural studies takes as its object being much less important than political institutions, being in a same state, um, being within a political community that can orchestrate peace and prosperity for people. Of course the media has a part in this, but actually, you know, if you look at the crisis in the EU, it's not a crisis that's driven by cultural institutions, cultural consumption and experience. It's a crisis created um, out of, and we come back to Monet, a very kind of Monet-ish political démarche. Um, the um, notion um, enshrined in the European Treaty that the EU project is one of creating ever closer union. And um, logically, of course, ever closer union can never be achieved. But I think the Euro was seen by its proponents um, as a major step towards cementing that union. Um, and indeed, for a time it did. Um, it meant um, one could um, circulate through many countries of the EU without having to change your money, stick your card into an ATM in a variety of countries and get the same um, currency notes out of it. And all of this seemed very, very good until about um, three years ago. I was a very, very vigorous proponent of the UK joining the euro. How wrong I was. Um, and the destructive and the sort of decoupling tendencies that we see, I, I think are, you know, those that come from the artefact, the economic and financial artefact of the euro and not from um, any um, inadequacies or malignities in the world of symbolic culture. Well, there's no doubt, obviously, that there is a problem with having a lack of fit between fiscal and monetary policy that's been exposed. And also there's a problem that is part of a, an even wider crisis in terms of debt structures and the way in which large loans to companies and individuals and states alike I, 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 I think that the debt um, aspect of this, although absolutely you know, important, something that needs to be, again, the fingers doing the quotation marks, solved, I think it's a very subordinate part of the problem. Um, the difficulty is that the countries experiencing the crisis most acutely are geographically peripheral in the European Union. Um, Germany is the centre, you know, it's the biggest single state in the EU, it's the most prosperous state, it's full of, you know, here I exaggerate of course, um, you know, disciplined, well-educated, skilled people in 
the geographical centre of a market. So these people have created for themselves um, a society that works, you know, extremely well. Um, their model of production um, is superior to anything anywhere else within um, the EU. And they have lower transport and coordination costs than any other um, economic entity. So, uh, you know, even if, um, let's say, um, engineering firm X in Cadiz was as efficient um, as engineering firm Y in Stuttgart, engineering firm X has got costs of transport coordination um, and so on that the Stuttgarters simply don't have. And the traditional way in which um, those economic um, imbalances have been dealt with is through different currencies and the currencies changing their relative value so that um, um, uh, company in Cadiz um, can invoice in um, uh, pesetas and uh, um, depreciate those vis-a-vis -vis, um, what once were Deutschmarks. Now that can't happen. And, you know, companies in Cadiz, Athens, Naples, um, Cork, um, and even outside the Eurozone um, in the north of the UK are significantly disadvantaged compared to those in Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg and so on. So I think that, um, you know, it's not debt um, primarily. It is comparative economic advantage and um, up until the creation of um, a unified currency zone, um, those disadvantaged by their geographical position, their educational level, their skilling, their um, relative um, labour discipline, you know, however you want to um, tell the story, have been able to compensate for that through de devaluation and indeed default at times. Now that's not an option. And so we're getting, you know, in the hard-nosed way, an enormous loss of productive capacity where people who could be at work are not at work. And, you know, in more human terms, the destruction of the life opportunities and experiences of a generation of young people. And again, you know, it ain't culture that's um, responsible for this. So moving on uh, back to this uh, media studies argument then, I guess part of your findings in Canada and the EU is that we should decenter the media as a focus of life itself, as it were. That's one lesson. Uh, well, I think that our profession has and has had an in interest in making the media and culture sound very important. Um, both of us have had really, you know, enormously um, privileged lives because we've been able to ride on the back of that presumption. We've been able to get jobs. Students have um, run like herds of lemmings into media and cultural studies courses um, throughout the world. And we've done very well out of that proposition that the media and culture is and are very important. Um, 
in my um, you know sort of increasingly um, grumpy old age, um, you know I think that's simply a fallacious um, proposition. Um, I'm still interested in the media, but I'm interested in it um, within that, if you like, reframe. Um, and, you know, within that reframing, of course, one has to acknowledge that these are significant institutions. We can see um, uh, a kind of, you know, global redistribution of productive activity um, in the media going on, um, certain societies, certain language groups very much advantaged in this um, global trade in media. Um, and we're also seeing, I think, um, a very striking um, change in the political economy of the media. Um, and I think that um, a media environment which for societies like the UK for more than a hundred years have provided a relatively pluralistic, affordable and relatively authoritative source of public information and debate. You know, the skids are now under that um, and um, I'm very interested in what it is that's put the skids under it and what you know particular mitigation um, or substitution there can be for you know what I call the decline of legacy media of um, free-to-air broadcasting and um, uh, you know the daily newspaper. So some people say this decline, this changing of the guard is about technology uh, some say it's about patterns of ownership and control. Uh, some say it's about audience desires, consumer reader desires. Some say it's some mixture of all these things. Some think the technology that matters is not the internet, it's satellite and cable. Well, I, I, I think that the, the ownership issues are secondary. I mean, you know, to say that they're secondary doesn't mean that they're not, you know, worth talking about, and we can talk about them if you wish. But I do think that we've seen um, a really qualitative change that is directly or indirectly down to technological change. So, you know, if you like, I am a technological determinist on this. Um, I think that the internet has made a very, very big difference and the most important difference um, has been the change in the advertising market. Um, we can come on to you know, how people's habits of consumption have changed, but what's really put the skids under the daily newspaper and free-to-air broadcasting, I think, is the substitution of eBay for the classified advertising that used to be in newspapers. If you want to sell your lawnmower, you don't take out a small ad in the paper anymore, you put it up on eBay. And display advertising has, to a considerable extent, migrated to search engines of which Google is preeminent. So there's been a massive, massive drop in advertising revenues for the newspapers in particular, and they sustained 
subsidised, if you like, the cover price of papers, which, you know, over the last five years have been rising significantly. Not surprising, newspaper buying has declined. Um, pagination in many newspapers has fallen. Um, you know, if you look at the Financial Times over the last four years, the cover price has more than doubled and pagination has fallen. I mean, it's simply no longer as authoritative a newspaper as um, it used to be. And the signs of um, decline are, you know, are there. Um, my FT consumption is free copies that are handed out at universities. Um, I don't have to pay for it. And um, the reason for this is, um, a spew, you know, that's... Um, uh, free gift um, enables the publisher to um, present the circulation figures to potential advertisers as being much more um, favourable than in fact they are. Television has had something of the same. Um, ad revenues have declined. Um, uh, there's a increasingly intense um, uh, competition for advertising revenues. Um, winners and losers um, and um, as we know the growth of um, subscription broadcasting media or subscription television um, which um, you know, relatively low in terms of audience share but very very high in terms of um, uh, command of revenues and so they are cannibalising the economic base and the consumption base of um, advertising funded media. So I think that, and this is where we come on to the ownership issues, I think that we increasingly see regulators faced with the very hard choice of accepting mergers and increasing in concentration of ownership or newspaper titles and newspapers are where it's being felt most acutely going out of business. So I don't share, um, you know, the, um, I think, rather glib assumption that the problem is, is Rupert. Actually, the problem is the migration of advertising revenue to internet-based um, media. And a consequential hollowing out of the funding that, again, I come back to the um, 100 years um, uh, uh, proposition, that for the last 100 years meant that societies like ours have been able to sustain universally available, universally affordable, pluralistic and relatively authoritative um, media. And that game is not quite over. But we're, you know, moving into extra time, I think. Before getting on to this question of what media studies should do, I wonder if you could answer or perhaps pose a more important question. What the fuck does the state do or does business do to ensure that some of the things that the media did that you've already yeah. said are important continue. Well, you know, and everyone mentions Watergate, but there are much less spectacular examples that are to do with local newspapers, aren't there? Yes. Of revealing things to the citizens. Well, let, I mean, let, let, let's take what, what, what does the state do? Yeah. Um, I think it's very simple. Um, 
you know, what I've described seems to me to be a classic instance of what economists call market failure. Mm. The classic response to market failure is state intervention. We've had that in spades in the broadcasting area with the funding of behemoths like the BBC and in Germany um, the ARD and ZDF. In the Australian or the Canadian context, you know, the revenue flows have not been so generous. But I would say, um, you know, the state needs to um, broaden, if you like, the public service broadcasting model to a public service media model. A few years ago, Ofcom... Um, Is the office of... Office of Communications, yeah, the it's, it's the, the UK equivalent of the Federal Communications Commission in the United States or the CRTC in Canada. It's the integrated regulator for electronic communications, telecom, broadcasting and so on. Um, a few years ago, Ofcom um, launched a little squib um, suggesting that what needed to be established was a public service publisher. Um, a funding body for, um, you know, media that were mitigating market failure. Now, this was lobbied out of existence largely by the BBC because the BBC, and I think rightly, saw itself as being the big loser here. Where was the money to come from for a public service publisher? And well, obviously from the licence fee. More for the public service publisher, less for the BBC. And in Britain, people who own colour television sets and television and... Any TV sets. Not, not black and white. Black and white, um, but the price is lower for black and white. I, when I bought, when I was, when I got my nasty dear Mr. Miller letter, we know you bought a television. It said I didn't have to. I think it was black and white. But anyway, black and white is a special well, category. Age I, is a special category, and also not just television sets. Recording devices that uh, yeah. borrow from broadcast signals, shall we say? Yeah. Okay, podcast listeners, um, Toby's proposition, the minimal proposition, is the one to listen to. Um, it's certainly colour TV sets, and I, I, I need to check whether there's a discount for a black and white set. Um, but, yeah, if you're the owner of a television receiving apparatus, <laughs> you are liable to pay a licence fee, an annual licence fee, about £147, I think it is at the moment. Um, there are um, interesting um, wheezes for getting round this. Um, please listen carefully because we don't want to give the BBC more money than we have to. Um, if you're um, watching catch-up television on your computer, you're not liable to pay the licence fee because the legislation is drafted essentially for an era of conventional broadcasting where the same diet of programming was received on, you know, 22 million um, receivers at the same time. And it's drafted to um, accommodate the simultaneous reception. Now, um, you know, the computer... Um, streaming of video, um, catch-up TV, and so on. Um, none of this is actually caught by the legislation that governs the licence at the moment. But, of course, most people pay it. 
UK is a relatively law-abiding society, um, and the BBC gets some um, more than three billion pounds a year from the licence fee. About one day's gross domestic product for the UK. It is a very, very large sum of money. And the expression the BBC keeps using, which I love, is salami slicing. Mm. They're very worried that their big sausage keeps getting cut into in order to feed other appetites. And this is what I think you were alluding to. And those of us like me who want to see the sausage sliced... <laughs> um, Richard's well known as an anti-phallocrat. <laughs> <laughs> we will um, perhaps return to that issue um, <laughs> on the um, password-protected adult um, part of your site, Toby. Um, but um, until about 1954, um, the BBC licence fee was top-sliced every year. The Treasury took about 10% of the take as a tax. Um, the post office took far more than it cost to actually um, issue the licence fee. So until the early 50s, the BBC was habitually top-sliced. Um, in fact, I think until the early 60s, again, um, podcast listeners, let me check this, um, but I think it was um, until the early 60s, in fact, when the BBC needed more money for investment Get another tea. Sorry. Yeah, and another lemon tea, please. When you got a chance. Yeah. No, no, no rush. No rush. Yeah. So there was. For forty years, there was this. Yeah. When when the BBC um, introduced colour TV, which I think was 1964, very big level of investment required to gear up for this. So top slicing came to an end. Um. And it was only reintroduced. Um about um, seven years ago when the Blair government decided that um, it was going to um, close down analogue television transmissions in the UK and move all terrestrial television broadcasting to a digital system. Quite an expensive exercise and um, the government essentially charged the BBC with a series of very significant duties in this process and earmarked or top-sliced or reserved, whichever um, metaphor you want, a portion of the licence fee to pay for this. And that top-slicing of the licence fee has continued. So the Conservative government at the moment is currently top-slicing the licence fee to pay for um, a series of city television channels that it's establishing. I think it's a daft policy, um, but nonetheless it's being funded from the licence fee. And so we're seeing, I think, um, over the last, let's say, 10 years, a change in conception of the licence fee um, in government to see it as a a resource to fund public or state media initiatives. Now, the BBC still gets overwhelmingly the majority of the licence fee, but nonetheless, this top slicing is becoming more and more um, firmly established. I I think, you know, frankly, it's a good model. Um, uh, if the BBC um, 
was doing what I think it ought to be doing, I might be more sympathetic um, to it retaining the money. But I think the BBC is a poor custodian of public finance. And I think, you know, if you look at its output, there's very little that you could identify as um, broadcasting of a kind that um, the um, commercial profit distributing sector wouldn't do. So I don't think it's doing its job as a... Thank you very much, I say to the lady bringing me another cup of tea. Um, I don't think it's doing its job as a public service broadcaster that ought to be different from the commercial sector. And I think that there are increasingly large claims on public finance in the media realm. And in a society that is um, cutting public expenditure, the idea of raising taxes for more expenditure on the media is a real um, non-runner. So, so, so for you, the state should intervene to yeah. try to do public sector publishing in a sense, regardless of media, yes, and without uh, privileging now, the I, I, I would like... I mean, that's a very heterodox view in media studies land. Um, and I'd like to get the debate to the point where we could say, how would we do this? Mm. What would the criteria be for awarding this public finance? And I've got some ideas there, but I mean, you know, there is no debate on those issues, and there has to be a debate on those issues. At the moment, we're sort of mired in a kind of um, hooray, boo debate about the BBC. Um, and, um, you know, I think that that will go on for a long time, because... Um, you know, the, the, there's no question. I mean, the BBC is very close to the heart of most people working in media studies in the UK. And, um, you know, I um, acknowledge what's blindingly obvious to um, most people who read media studies literature. The view I've put forward is a, a very heterodox and not widely held one. Of course, some of those people would argue that it is also close to the structure of feeling of many people in the UK. And the BBC would argue that in terms of its viewing numbers and many, but not all, public opinion findings. I, I, I think that's true, Toby, and um, I'm sure that the majority of the UK population has still got a very soft spot in its heart for the BBC. I'd respond in two ways to that. Um, one is to say the numbers are diminishing, but it's still a majority, there's no question about it. But soft spots are not always in the right place. Um, and I think that if one were to preface questions to the person on the top of the 38 bus, do you like the BBC, yes or no, by fascinating facts like, did you know that a few years ago Ofcom fined the BBC um, several hundred thousand pounds because it had been faking competitions on children's TV programmes, you might get a very different answer. Um, and um, it's only nasty-minded little people like me that um, want to preface these polls by um, such fascinating facts. Most of the polls are financed by the BBC, and um, not surprisingly, they don't foreground this sort of information. They run them just after the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would too, wouldn't you? <laughs> so, 
Richard, we've got about a quarter of an hour left, and I suppose this is where I would like to make things a bit narrower, uh, which is to say, given this new environment, and given the failure of English language studies to contribute to this debate in the way you suggested is the case, what do you think this field needs to do in terms of how it goes about its analysis, its research, its teaching, its intervention? I mean, I, I think the first thing to say is um, I realise it's a good thing that I've retired because <laughs> all the stuff that I know about and what we've been talking about this morning, you know, is dying off. You know, I know a lot about the history of the newspaper, I know a lot about broadcasting, etc. etc. I don't know nearly enough about the internet or social media, um, and I think these are the kind of things that have got to be more central in media studies than they have been. And there's no question that you know some people and some institutions are doing staggeringly good work on these issues. Um, you know, the very um, unlikely located um, Oxford Internet Institute is a, is a case in point. Um, you know, one can always be surprised in the UK, and um, one wouldn't, um, on a clean sheet of paper, have written down the University of Oxford as um, your first choice of an institution that would um, put significant resources into the study of the internet. But the OIR, I think, is doing some really outstanding work on these issues, and uh, I think it's, you know, a, a sign of the times that what the OII is doing is not really centred on legacy media at all, and I think rightly so. Um, you know, what we've been talking about, what, you know, people in media studies land is, you know, as the tides wash over it and um, more and more of the land gets drowned, um, is, you know, a medium or a series of media that are dying. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course. I mean, in new, newly marketised economies, China and India are the outstanding examples, but Russia is another case in point. Legacy media, traditional media, are really growing fast. Um, new newspapers being established in China and India. Um, newspaper readership going up in these places. Newspapers becoming a really important advertising medium, and so on. But in the North Atlantic world, which has been through the 20th century, the economic, political, military and media hub of the world. Well, it's ceasing to be all those things. And um, in the world that I've professionally been concerned with in the media, traditional newspapers and broadcasting is in decline. 
they'll still be with us for decades. There will still be newspapers after my death, I'm sure about it. And they'll still be free to air television. But they'll be much more, much less socially and economically salient than they have been. So the technological focus needs to shift, the medium specificity needs to shift. And the consumption perspective needs to shift as well. And you, Toby, um, referred earlier to the question of changing consumption habits. This is not something that I've done much work on in my professional life. But, um, you know, even um, naive observation as one's um, travelling or walking around the streets. You go on the underground in London now, the only newspapers people are reading, okay, here come the fingers for the inverted commas again, the only newspapers that people read, are the free sheets. Yeah. The Evening um, Standard is a very now very successful afternoon newspaper, uh, funded by uh, Mr. KGB, KGB yeah. retirement monies, <laughs> or post-socialist retirement monies. Yep. And Mr. Lebedev has been rewarded by um, a grateful UK government by being given the um, licence for the London um, City Television Channel. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Lebedev is great. You know, he's funded the Evening Standard, which occasionally has interesting stuff in it. Um, he's funding the uh, Independent, which is, um, a, you know, conspicuous act of charity on his part. Um, the only sort of liberal Democrat newspaper in the UK. Um, the least well-funded group of journalists in the UK. Um, and, um, yeah... Uh, Mr. Lebedev will be very familiar with it. Um, so it is the Pravda of the world of social workers. <laughs> so these consumption perspectives need to be added. What would that mean for some of the traditional anxieties of media studies? I mean, you talked earlier about a foundational ethos that's run through it for, I would say, a millennium, but... Any, any normal person would say a century or half a century. Namely, how do we get the little bastards out there in the world to think the way we want them to and stop them thinking the way we don't want them to, whether that's ideological, propagandistic, commercial, whatever it may be. You know, yeah. The world of effects understood as much as being about psychoanalytic renderings of Hollywood well, I, as about yeah. sales and yeah. ideology. Um, it's, a, it's a good question, Toby, and I wouldn't claim very much professional expertise lying behind my answer but my answer would be of this kind I think that we're seeing a much more self-conscious organization by political and economic institutions to get their message out so PR companies press releases um, uh, funding of websites, etc., um, etc. Et um, now we know that that's always been there, but over the last 20 years in the UK, I mean, that's really grown in salience. Um, and you know, the unfortunate graduates from undergraduate courses in media studies, by and large, they're not getting jobs as journalists now. They're getting jobs as um, PR and um, uh, media fluffies, really. Um, so that's that's one um, answer to your question. How do how does the message get out? 
Um, secondly, I think, you know, we're seeing um, a disquiet in established power centres about this. Um, there's a constant sort of worrying away, how do we control the internet? Um, and a sort of, you know, disquieting to people like me, hankering to um, exercise the kind of control that formerly was able to be exercised over, you know, state licensed broadcasting or indeed in some societies, state licensed newspapers. So um, we are, I think, in a, a period of a you know certain amount of flux, um, where established power relationships and power reciprocities are starting to fall away, um, with a consequential intensification of control rhetoric and the sort of attempts to control, and a change in you know the kind of professionalisation of the handling and circulation of information, a relative growth of importance in company and um, political um, PR activities. Yeah, sure. In terms of what I would think of as a traditional tripartite base to media studies, uh, who owns and makes all this stuff and who controls it? What is it? Yeah. And what do audiences make of it? So let's mm. call them political economy, textual or content analysis, and reception studies. Are any of those things of utility? Do they need to be well, junked? Yes. No, no. I, I don't think that they need to be junked. I think that they need to change their object. That's all. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, what I've been talking for the last however many minutes has been is political economy of the media talk. Um, so, all I'm saying is the established objects of that talk are becoming less salient. We just need to, you know, look at new things. Um, uh, that doesn't mean we cease to look at the old things. But, you know, relatively speaking, I think that the effort that's going into inquiry around the internet and social media is not enough. And that, you know, banging the old drums or whipping the old horses around legacy media is still going on a bit too much. And, you know, I think um, the debate about ownership exemplifies that um, perfectly. Um, you know, everyone still fetishises Rupert as the demon. Um, well, um, I think, you know, in ten years' time, Rupert will be seen as, you know, a kind of benevolent friend of legacy media because he's certainly, you know, over the last ten years been spending far more money on the content of the Times and the Wall Street Journal than any rational capitalist ever would. This is Rupert Murdoch uh, and Richard's referring to the fact that whereas his television and satellite interests were once subsidised by his newspaper revenues, now it's very much the other way around. I wonder if to finish off I could just pick you up on one point that I didn't fully understand. You might be able to help us with. I understood you to be saying that on the one hand you would favour state intervention here in the UK via the licence fee to provide the kind of public sector service broadcasting for Western European nations. Well, I, pu public service and public sector, well, not necessarily public sector, 
I don't. I'm, I'm relatively neutral on whether the institutions are privately or publicly right. owned. So they could be but Public service media. Yeah. Yeah. Public service media that might be subsidised yeah. commercial enterprises yeah. in the same way that Channel 5 and ITV are public service media, yeah. believe it or not. <laughs> believe some, it or not. Sometimes yeah. they don't think they are. Yeah. But in the same way that in the United States, there's a reason why uh, the broadcasters get privileged positions on the satellite dial yeah. in many countries. Well, but I, you would like to see something like that for the yeah. internet and newspapers. But later on, I think you said you're worried about the idea of trying to control the media. Yes, I am. And uh, cl clearly, you know, state funding carries with it dangers. Um, um, and penalties. Um, I, again, come back to my hobby horse about the BBC. Um, the outgoing um, Director General of the BBC, Mark Thompson, now Editor-in-Chief of the New York Times, said that the BBC would never have broken the story about members of Parliament's abuse of the expenses system that the Daily Telegraph did. You know, BBC knows that, you know, to a considerable extent, it has to behave when it's reporting um, politicians and um, the state. So there is a real danger, of course, in um, arguing, as I've done, for a widening of eligibility for public funding. So I think, um, you know, the second order debate that it's very hard to find anyone to have with in the UK about, you know, what the criteria should be for awarding public funds, how we should ensure that um, the funding body, the, the government, you know, isn't able to improperly exert control over contents of. I mean, those are difficult questions. I don't have neat answers. So, you know, I'm a great, you know, believer in, um, you know, kind of Darwinian process or Popperian process of subjecting ideas to, you know, tests of destruction and falsification. Um, but you need interlocutors to do that, and there ain't many interlocutors on that issue. Well, thanks to this magnificent intervention you've made in the pod this morning, past, Richard, you will soon have three men and a dog in Stockholm. <laughs> my traditional audience, leaping into action to perform the service of interlocution. Well, I say to uh, the three men and a dog in Stockholm, tack. <laughs> tack indeed. Richard, uh, tuck to you. Uh, as Robert De Niro might say, tuck you very much. Uh, it's been great having this discussion with you, and I think you are touching on something very important. John Kerry, when he was still a senator before he became Secretary of State, tried to get this discussion going in the Congress of the United States. How interesting. Uh, very, very forcefully, and from a position of immense authority and power, and was squashed. Yeah. But I would urge you to engage maybe with Kerry's people because I think there's a debate going on there, often not involving academics, but definitely at both a grassroots, a proprietorial and a congressional level that is ahead of what we have here in the UK, even though he was very much pushed into the ground. Well, a good tip, Toby. So thank you very much. We like to have quid pro quo here in the pod. Richard, I hope you'll re-enter the pod another time. It's been great having you here. Thank you very much, Toby.